Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Mother's Day. It's an exciting day. I, every single year, it feels like I grow in more and more appreciation for my mother and everything that she sacrificed for me and my brothers and love her so much. And I grow in appreciation as I've watched Natalie be the mother of our three kids, soon to be four on Tuesday, which is very exciting. Uh, just growing in my appreciation of the tremendous sacrifice that you as moms make for our children. You sacrifice so much for them. You give so much of yourself for their flourishing, and we are so thankful for you. So happy Mother's Day to you all. If we haven't met, my name's Stephen Jones. I am the church planting candidate here at Candeo, and very excited to be with you this morning. We're continuing on in our family series, Family Matters. These are topics that we are hitting as an elder team, wanting to present to you various positions, theological positions, things like that on some key topics in our church. And so the first four weeks, we kind of had a little presentation, then an elder panel for the next three weeks, we're just going to have kind of a more normal sermon teaching uh, style. So let me ask you this. When God, when it comes to the ways that God has revealed himself to us, what would you say is the way that gives us the greatest glimpse of who he is? So we got scripture, which gives us kind of a special revelation of who he is, but there's other ways that he reveals himself. Of those of the more general ways that he reveals himself, which gives us the greatest glimpse of himself? Well, you might say mountain ranges or the intricacies of cells or the vastness of galaxies. All of those things would be great things. Those all reveal to us aspects of who God is, his wonder, his power, his glory, But in the created world, there is one thing that gives us the greatest glimpse of who God is, and it's the family. The family. The family operating the way God has designed it gives us the greatest glimpse of himself. And now when I say family, this includes both your relational family and your spiritual family, the church. When families, whether it's relational or spiritual, when families operate the way God designed them to operate, The family gives the greatest glimpse to the world, the greatest glimpse in the created world of who God is, his glory, and his nature. Now, there's a lot of ways that the family gives a world a view of God, but we're only going to talk about one aspect this morning, one specific way that the family can give the world a glimpse into who God is, and that is when men and women embrace the role that God has designed for them. When men and women embrace the design that God created inside the family, inside the church family, it gives the world a glimpse of who God is. So this morning, I'm going to present our church's complementarian theology, our theology on how men and women should operate inside the church and inside the home. And if you have questions after, you can always email me at jakeherring at candeochurch.com. <laughs> <laughs> So here's where we're going to go. First, I'm going to make or give an overview of the various positions and make an argument for complementarianism. Second, we'll see the application of complementarianism in the family and the church. And then lastly, I'll outline five implications for us today. 
So first, what are the various positions and why complementarianism? Well, the various positions that have historically been taken when it comes to the way men and women relate to one another in the church, inside the home, you could say there's four general positions. And if you kind of think of it as a spectrum, you have all the way over here, radical feminism, then you have egalitarianism, then you have complementarianism, and then on the far right, you have chauvinism. Now, the way you could distinguish these four positions basically comes down to two questions. Are men and women, do they have equal value? And do men and women have equal roles? You can basically distinguish those four positions by those two questions. So a radical feminism position, you could say, would say men and women do not have equal value, women over men, and they have access to the same roles. So when it comes to roles, same access. When it comes to value, women over men. Egalitarian, they would say, no, they have equal value and they have equal access to roles. No distinction between the roles of men and women. Complementarianism, they'd say equal value, distinction in role. And then chauvinism on the far right would say not equal in value, men over women, and not equal in role. Men have access to certain roles that women do not. So you can say that is the spectrum of the positions or views that have historically been taken when it comes to men and women and their value and roles. Now, what is the right position to take? Well, to get the answer to that, we're gonna go all the way to Genesis 1 and 2. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to your first page of your Bible. And we wanna see God's design in the pre-fall state, before sin entered the world, how did God design men and women, specifically when it comes to these two questions? Do men and women have equal value and do men and women have equal roles? And actually in the first two pages of our Bible, we get answers to both those questions. So let's start with equal value. Do men and women carry equal value? Look at Genesis 1:26. Here's what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So right here in Genesis 1, we get the first word from God about gender. And what do we see? The very first thing that we see is that gender is good, that God has a beautiful design in making two sexes, making two genders, that diversity even at this level was beautiful. And what else do we see? We see that both genders are made in the image of God, which means both men and women are equal in value, dignity, and in worth. Both sexes offer a glimpse into God's glory that is beautiful and a, a glimpse that cannot be seen without the other. As men and women flourish, complement one another, we understand God's glory more accurately. So right here, Genesis 1:26, made in God's image, both male and female, he created them. There's an inextricable value and worth in maleness and femaleness, both genders carrying value and worth. Now, he gives, gives this uh, designation of equal and value worth. Then he gives them the first command. Look at verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. 
rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. What's happening here? Well, I don't know if you've ever realized, but the very first commandment in the Bible is to have sex. Kind of wild. Why? Why is that the first command? Well, this is the pre-fall state. No sin has entered the world. God's image in humans is not distorted. So the only requirement for God's glory to spread, to fill the earth, is for there to be more humans made in his image to rule over it in a way that honors God. So right here, you have man and woman made in God's image, told to bear offspring, and if they did, God's glory would fill the earth. What this means is that the family when it operates according to God's design, gives the world the clearest picture of God's glory and likeness. Because here you have image bearers told to have offspring and that would give the world a glimpse into God's glory. So if that's the question of value, do we see the question of distinction and role come up? We do. Look at Genesis 2. Let me read Genesis 2.15 in this passage for us. We'll go to verse 25. Here's what it says. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they will become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked yet felt no shame." Okay, here we get the picture of the first family, Adam and Eve. Now, we've already seen that both have inextricable value and worth, which means we could reject both radical feminism and chauvinism at this point. But here's the great question. Does equal value necessitate equal role? That is the tension between egalitarianism and complementarianism. Does equal value necessitate equal role? Our culture would say yes. The only way that you could have equal value is if you have access to every role. But is that true? Well, from this passage, we're gonna see four pieces of evidence that would say no. Equal value does not necessitate equal role. That you can carry just as much value and worth and yet have a difference in role. Denny Burke outlines the evidences in, the, in his article in the Gospel Coalition from Genesis 2, and he outlines four pieces of evidence. Here's the first one. Primogeniture. Adam was created before Eve. Primogeniture. 
Now that might seem insignificant to us today because birth order or, or creation order means little, very little to us in our culture. But in ancient cultures and Jewish culture specifically, there would have been significant understanding of the importance of the creation order between Adam and Eve. So much so that in a minute, we'll see that Paul grounds his entire argument for differing roles for men and women in the, in the church based on the creation order, primogeniture in 1 Timothy 2.13. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Second, the order of accountability. Adam is given the command not to eat the fruit before Eve is created. And then even though Eve was first deceived, it is Adam who is confronted first by God. Why? Well, Adam was designated the leader of their marriage. He was ultimately held accountable for the spiritual state of his family. Both the leadership of following the commands and then being held accountable when they failed to meet those commands. Third, God designates Eve as Adam's helper. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. So Eve is designated as a helper who corresponds to him. This is where the word complementary comes from. Eve would complement Adam as his helper. Now again, keep in mind, this is pre-fall, before sin entered the world. God had established that both man and woman were inextricably valuable in his eyes, and yet we are seeing that equal value does not necessitate equal roles. Fourth, the naming of woman. When God creates Eve from Adam's rib, he brings her to Adam and then he names her. Adam names Eve. He says, this one shall be called woman. Now in the context of Genesis 1 and 2, the naming of something is significant. In Genesis 1, God calls light day and he calls dark night. He calls the expansive above sky. He calls the dry land earth. You see God wielding the ability to name as an expression of his authority and leadership. Then as his viceroy, he gives Adam, his viceroy, this authority as well to name and call animals as an expression of his leadership. And then Adam names woman an expression of his leadership and authority inside their marriage. So what do we see in Genesis 1 and 2? Pre-fall, everything operating according to God's beautiful design, God establishes that men and women have equal value, dignity, and worth as image bearers, and yet distinct roles in the family. Adam and Eve clearly had distinct roles that God assigned to them in his wisdom. Why? We'll go back to the family unit. The greatest glimpse we have into who God is in the created world is a family of image bearers operating according to God's good design. Within the Godhead itself is leadership, submission, helping, and authority. God the Father leads and exercises authority. God the Son submits to the will of the Father and the Holy Spirit is the great helper. Within the perfect Godhead, we see authority, submission, and helping all in the context of equality and divinity. All equally God, yet distinct in role. So here is the conclusion. Submission and authority cannot inherently be wrong because they are seen both in the Godhead of the Trinity and in the first pre-fall family in Adam and Eve. Now, 
That passage then is the bedrock when we get to the New Testament for understanding the role of men and women in two key environments, the family and the church, the relational family and the spiritual family. So our position then would be complementarianism. That there is, that men and women have an equal value, dignity, and worth as image bearers of God and distinct God-given roles in the family and the church. Now, how does this apply to these two contexts? Well, first, the family, the relational family. The clearest teaching on this dynamic would come from Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Here's what it says. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. So here Paul defines the roles within Christian marriage, the role of submission for the wife and the role of leadership for the husband. Now, the first place to start when defining these and understanding these is to start with the nature of marriage itself. Natalie and I were at a wedding a few years ago and the officiant during the the sermon portion, she, she said, okay, the two of you stand here today as individuals and you will leave here today as individuals, but you have decided to commit yourselves together for friendship and companionship, though you remain individuals. That is an incredibly shallow view of marriage. Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Marriage is not a contract between two individuals. It is the covenant union between a husband and wife where they become one. And so much of the frustration and confusion around submission and authority is because we view, or our culture views marriage as individuals making a contract with one another not two individuals being united in a covenant where they become one flesh. Now, if you don't understand the nature of marriage, submission and authority won't make any sense to you. You could think of the difference of kind of understanding this in the same difference between kayaking and canoeing. If we went kayaking, what would be true? We would each have our own individual boat and we'd be enjoying it. Kayaking is great. But if you told me or I told you, hey, I want you to hook your individual kayak behind my individual kayak, and for the rest of the day, you have to go wherever I want to go. That'd be horrible. That'd be frustrating. That'd be the worst kayaking experience of all time. I'd hate that. I'd be like, I want to go see that shore. And you'd say no. It would be frustrating. What is the difference, though, between kayaking and canoeing? In a canoe, there is one boat. You are one. And there are two distinct roles. 
And, it, and leadership in a canoe becomes necessary. There's someone in the front helping and rowing. There's someone in the back guiding and steering. And if there's confusion about the rules, you are not going anywhere in that canoe. See, there's a significant difference between seeing two individual kayaks, and then if you're told to hook your kayak up behind the other, frustrating, versus the, nece the necessity of leadership inside one canoe. Leadership and submission become necessary if you are going to go anywhere. Both positions are very important, but one needs to take point and lead, and the other needs to help. Now, what does that look like inside our marriages? Well, for the husband, it's loving, sacrificial leadership. Not domineering, but gentle, active, intentional leadership. Leadership that empowers his wife to have strong influence in the home. For the wife, it's the loving, sacrificial submission to her husband. You are empowering your husband to lead the family in a way that honors God. You recognize the unique role that God has assigned to him inside your marriage, and you respect that. When this happens, there is a healthy, safe, humble environment, a marriage that is marked with tenderness, grace, forgiveness, confidence to lovingly confront one another. And when those mark our marriages, what happens? Verse 32, this mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Christ is glorified. Our marriages and families give the world a glimpse of Christ. It gives the world a glimpse of how Christ, the great bridegroom, loved his bride to the point of sacrificing his life for her. He leveraged his leadership for her flourishing. The church joyfully submits to our bridegroom, Jesus. Our marriages paint a picture of the dynamic of Christ and the church, the gospel. Now, complementarianism not only applies to our relational families, but also to our spiritual families. And our spiritual families, just as much as our relational families, can also give the world a glimpse of God's glory. Our church can give the world a picture of who God is. Now, over and over again, the New Testament affirms that one of the primary ways to understand what the church is, is to view it as a family. So it would follow then that God's design and pattern for healthy human families would be similar to design and pattern of healthy church families. So first, we see equal value, dignity, and worth for men and women. Here's what Galatians 3, 27 through 29 says. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. What is Paul saying? When it comes to the promises and benefits of salvation, there is no earthly distinction that separates any of us. Not race, not gender, not position in society. We are all one in Christ. We are all equal in our status as heirs of Christ in God's sight. Now, here's the same question again. Does equality and value necessitate equality and role? Again, the church family follows the pattern of the human family. Turn to 1 Timothy 2. We'll spend some time in this passage. When it comes to dynamics in the church, 1 Timothy 2 is one of the key passages that gives insight on it. 
We'll be in 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. Here's what it says. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works as it is proper for women who profess to worship God. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. Okay, there's a lot going on in there. First, the context of 1 Timothy 2 and 3, it seems to have in mind a corporate worship service, the assembled church. You have teaching, you have prayer, you have unity, lifting up holy hands. In 3.15, he says, I've written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. So this is the context of Paul's instruction, the assembled church. Now, within this context, Paul says, a woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. So here Paul establishes a difference in role between men and women in the life of the church. In the assembled church, a woman is not to teach or have authority over a man. The main issues of role then here are teaching and authority. Now let's clarify teaching. First, Paul is not commanding complete silence in the assembled church. If he was, he would be contradicting himself in 1 Corinthians 11.5, where he describes women praying and prophesying in the gathered church. Prophecy is not teaching, but it's a strong encouragement or exhortation. So in 1 Corinthians 11, he's commanding, he, he couldn't be commanding complete silence because there you see prayer and prophecy happening just silence when it comes to the teaching moment of the service. Second, he's not forbidding all forms of teaching. We saw in our Titus series, Titus 2.3, he encourages older women to teach younger women. You also see informal teaching moments like Acts 18.26, where Priscilla and Aquila are teaching Apollos. What is Paul forbidding then? Paul is forbidding women to teach in the gathered church and have the position of authority in the church, which would be elder. Two things, teaching in the gathered church and being an elder of the church. What is the reason for this? Well, Paul anchors the reason for this in Genesis 2. Not something culturally in Ephesus, in Genesis 2. Adam was created before Eve, primogeniture. Paul grounds the reason in the design of creation. And not only that, when this dynamic wasn't functionally wasn't functioning in its proper way, it led to the fall. It led to Eve being deceived and Adam's failure as a leader. Now, there's some common objections to this view that I, interpretation that I outlined in 1 Timothy 2. One objection would be women were not educated in Ephesus. So this is why Paul doesn't want uneducated people teaching, but that would not make sense because there were highly educated women in the church of Ephesus. Priscilla, who we just talked about in Acts 18, was one of the women in Ephesus, highly educated. 
Another is that women were te- another objection is that maybe women were teaching false doctrine in, evidence, in Ephesus. But again, there's no evidence to support that. And the only people listed as false teachers in Ephesus were actually men. Third, on the issue of authority, uh, some, sometimes the word authority is interpreted as the word abuse. That the issue was not about exercising authority, but usurping or abusing authority. However, there are 80 examples of this word outside the New Testament that clearly establish it as exercising authority, not abuse. And then lastly, it's often said that this was a temporary command for this culture. But again, Paul grounds the reason for this command in the design of creation, not a temporal cultural reason. So 1 Timothy 2 then establishes that in the assembled church, teaching and authority is a role reserved for men. There are other passages and scripture evidence that would support this. Some of those Wayne Grudem outlines, I'll go through them quickly. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul gives similar instructions about learning in silence in church and the women. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 and Titus 1, 5 through 9 give instructions for elders, which assumes that all elders would be male. You have the pattern of the human family informing the pattern of the church family. You have the examples of the apostles that were all men which one could argue was only a feature of the Jewish culture, but when the Gentile leaders were brought in, there were no women brought in, even though Gentile leaders were brought in. You also have the history and the example of the Bible. Men are the only example in the Bible of of leaders functioning in the typical ways a pastor would function. Lastly, you have the history of the church. The vast majority of church history, the office of elder and pastor has been reserved for men. Now, the church can get things wrong for a very long time, and there are times to reject that. But it should be rejected once it has at least been strongly reflected on and do- on, strongly reflected on the doctrine and practice that led to those beliefs. So then, complementarianism. Men and women have equal value, worth, and dignity as image bearers and recipients of salvation, and yet have distinct roles in the church and in the home. Let me walk through five practical implications of that theology for our church. First, abuse of male leadership. It is absolutely true that men inside their homes and men inside the church have failed in exercising leadership throughout history and today. There's been harm both because men passively surrender leadership and aggressively abuse and domineer in their leadership. And whenever we see examples of that in history or present day in the church, we need to repent and mourn and take active steps to be a biblically functioning church or family. That being said, abuse of and failure to implement God's design in our homes and in our church is not justification to reject God's design for our church and for our families. Instead, elders should model their leadership in the church family in the same way they exercise godly leadership in their homes, serving in the same way Christ served the church by laying himself down for her, for her flourishing. Second, we need to fight to see the beauty in God's design for the church and family. This is obviously a topic or position that is not widely accepted or or thought well of in our culture. And it'd be very easy to look at this theology with disdain or to say, man, I wish this was different, but we need to fight to see the beauty in our theology. 
When the church and family functions with gospel complementarianism, it gives the world the clearest picture of God's glory and his image and creation. Why does God choose to reserve the leadership for men only? It's his design that men would give the world a picture of the loving, unchanging, caring authority of God the Father in their families. That the wife would give the world the picture of the Son and the Spirit who submit to the Father gracefully and help him in his mission as equally God. In their submission, they are no less God than God the Father is, yet they have a distinct role. This is the same picture that is to be mimicked in our families and in the church family. As the church body submits to the leaders of the church, the elders, there's a real beauty in biblical leadership and biblical submission, not the cultural abuse or distortion of those two words, but the beautiful design that God had for the church and for the family. Third, Submission to elders is not about women submitting to men, but the whole church body submitting to the authority that is held in the plurality of the elders. There's a demand on all believers to submit to their elders, Hebrews 13, 17. In fact, this call to submission also includes individual elders submitting to the plurality of elders. Biblical eldership is not you as an individual submitting to another individual elder. It's instead all of us as the members of this local body submitting to the authority that is held in the collective of the elders. Now, this also means that there is no general authority that men hold over women. Outside of the church submitting to the plurality of elders and a wife submitting to her husband, there is no call for women to generally submit to men. Fourth, the design of leadership in the church and family is not based on competence or gifting. God did not design the church and the family this way because men are inherently better leaders or more gifted at teaching. Outside of the church and the family, there is no position in society that the Bible restricts women from having. The Proverbs 31 woman is buying and selling land, negotiating at the city gate, is a woman of business and means. Most of the chauvinism that has seeped into the church was a reflection of 1950s sexism, not a careful reflection on scripture. Lastly, we need to empower women to step into every leadership and ministry opportunity the Bible affords them. Priscilla instructed and discussed scripture with Apollos in an informal setting, Acts 18, 26. Phoebe was a deacon in the church of Sincrea, Romans 16.1. Women prayed and prophesied publicly in the church of Corinth, 1 Corinthians 11.5. Lydia was one of the chief financial supporters of Paul's ministry, Acts 16. Mary, Joanna, Susanna were key financial supporters of Jesus's ministry, Luke 8. Yodia and Syntyche contended for the gospel with Paul and Philippi, Philippians 4.2. We need to work hard to equip and empower women to step into every available serving and leadership opportunity the Bible affords them. That is our complementarian theology. Now, I recognize that it's a topic that can be hard, a topic that can be hard to implement, a topic that can be hard to embrace, but here's the opportunity for us. In our design and in our embracing God's design of authority and submission, we have the opportunity to give the world a glimpse of the gospel.
specifically women, you have the opportunity to give the world the beautiful picture of Christ. Here's what Christ did for us. Here's what Philippians 2.6 says. Christ, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Christ subordinated himself under the Father. Though he was equally God, he submitted to his Father's will, not my will, but your will be done. And in his submission and obedience, even to the point of death, he brought about our salvation. He redeemed us. He sacrificed his life as the great bridegroom for our flourishing, for the flourishing of the church, for the salvation of the church. Are these commands challenging for us? Yes. Are these easy roles to fulfill? No. Do we fall short in the church and our family of representing God well? All the time. But by his grace, we can embrace his vision for our spiritual family and for our relational family. And when we do, when we look at our Savior who submitted himself to his Father for our salvation, we will give the world a picture of his gospel and his grace. Let me pray. God, what an extraordinary thing to think about your nature that for all of eternity, you have existed as three. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And what C.S. Lewis calls a beautiful dance, you have oriented around one another in sacrificial love and service. And God, what an incredible picture that inside our spiritual family and relational families, we could give the world a picture of you and your nature when we don't orient our lives and desires around ourselves, but orient them around serving others by stepping into the roles that you've called us to. The wise, sacrificial, loving, intentional, active leadership of the Father. The humble, sacrificial, servant-hearted, respectful service of the Son the helping, the aiding, the coming alongside of the Holy Spirit. God, in our relationships, in the family, in the church, we give the world a glimpse into the Trinity, into you, where we see equality in God, equality in divinity did not necessitate equality in role. God, though this is a challenging theology, though this is a challenging position for us today, would we have the humility to submit ourselves to your word? and embrace the design you have for us? Would you help us to see the beauty of your design that you established on the first pages of our Bible? And would, as we step into that design, would it bring about our flourishing and would it bring you glory? Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.